like to move on to talking about prevention, and we're very, very pleased to have um, with us uh, today from the um, uh, from the NIH, actually, um, there she is, uh, Emily Erbelding, and Emily is um, working now as a deputy director of the Division of AIDS uh, with Carl Diffenbach and others there who a lot of you have worked with over the years. Um, Emily's going to really give us sort of two talks, and I think what she wants more than anything is feedback from us about how some of these new data uh, that have just been released, especially from, uh, from uh, HPTN 052, um, how these play out. So there's going to be two overall discussions uh, that she's going to lead us through, and very glad you're here, Emily. Welcome. Thank you. And I thank the conference organizers for inviting me. So this is the, okay, thank you. So the order of my talks were flipped. I decided that just based upon the content, it made most sense to talk about treatment as prevention and the results of HPTN 052 first, and then to follow that with talking about prevention with positives in general. So I think um, many of you are aware, I think this got a lot of media attention uh, last month when National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease um, released a press announcement that, uh, that, that reported that HPTN 052 had been discontinued early um, based upon the recommendations of a, a regularly scheduled data safety and monitoring board review of data results and treating HIV-infected people with antiretrovirals significantly reduced the risk of transmitting HIV to their sexual partners. So I'm going to talk a little bit more. This hasn't been published yet. It really has only um, been presented in, in very small sessions in addition to what was in this press release. There will be a, a lot of presentations at the International AIDS Conference in Rome in July and um, probably accompanying um, papers in uh, big uh, journals in the month of July, too, so you'll learn more details then. I'm going to talk just on the main results, what we know now. So first of all, some, of, some people ask the question, actually, as this study was ongoing, why are you doing this study at all? We know from observational studies that um, reducing viral load or a low viral load in an infected person reduces the risk of HIV being transmitted to others. And, and that's true. Uh, over the past several years, really largely since this trial, after this trial had started, though, there were a, a number of observational reports that focused on couples that showed that there was uh, a reduced risk of HIV transmission when ARV therapy was successfully introduced. But there were a few studies, one in China that didn't show that, that showed that there was really no difference when ARV was instituted. So it was an open question, and all of these papers focused on um, observational cohorts, so really not the gold standard for um, evidence in, uh, in, in changing, that would lead to a change in, in policy. So what, what was the design of HPTN 052, and what were its goals? Well, the specific aims were twofold, the main specific aims. The first was to determine whether antiretroviral use by an HIV-infected person could prevent transmission of the virus to his or her sexual partner. So discordant HIV couples were enrolled in the study. And then um, 
It also sought to answer the question of what is the optimal time in terms of the natural history of HIV disease, what would be the optimal time for initiation of therapy. And the outcomes then were transmission to the uninfected partner and also illness or HIV-related illness in the individual who was HIV-infected. So this schematic shows the main design of the study. The entry criteria were couples in which one partner, the index partner, was HIV-infected. The HIV-infected index partner had to have a CD4 cell count between 350 and 550 cells. 1,763 serodiscordant couples were enrolled. The vast majority were heterosexual. And the vast majority, I'll show you, came from countries outside of the United States, mainly low-income and middle-income countries. These couples then were randomized, and the strategy was either immediate antiretroviral therapy initiated for the index, the HIV-infected person, or delayed following the index person clinically until their CD4 cell count either fell below 250 or they had an AIDS-defining illness. So that was the main study design. The sites where couples were recruited from were Botswana, Brazil, India, Kenya, Malawi, South Africa, and Thailand, and Zimbabwe. And then there were just a handful, I think two or three couples recruited from the United States. There were a few sites open in the United States, but it was not of interest to people and to couples in the United States who were presented with the study design to be randomized because, as many of your patients might have, there were preconceived ideas about when antiretroviral therapy would be started. So most of the data here comes from low-income and middle-income countries. All participants received counseling on safe sex practices, free condom, treatment for STIs, frequent HIV testing, and evaluation and treatment for any complications related to HIV infection. A pilot study began in 2005, and when it was demonstrated that they could recruit in sufficient numbers, recruitment opened in earnest in 2007. The planned end of the study was 2015, based upon the incidence of HIV that was expected to be observed through the pilot data. And the median CD4 count at entry was over 400, 436 cells per microliter. So the main results, what we know right now, when the Data and Safety Monitoring Board that met at the end of April looked at the locked data set, there were 39 total infections, and of these, 28 could be linked. So there was very sophisticated genetic analysis done to make sure that the person who became infected with HIV in the course of the study actually acquired that HIV from the partner that they were with. So people did become infected in this study, apparently by genetic testing, from people that were outside of the main partnership as well, and those were not counted in the main results as linked infections. There were 27 in the delayed arm, and there was one in the immediate arm, the arm where the index patient was immediately started on therapy. This was highly statistically significant, so that antiretroviral therapy, when started early, really prevented transmission of HIV. 
there really was no clear relationship between um, HIV transmission and CD4 cell count. Uh, so many of the infections occurred even when the CD4 cell count was high, higher than um, what is the standard base, the standard point for, for starting antiretroviral therapy in, in most of um, low resource and middle resource income settings currently. Of the 28 linked infections, 10 were male to female and 18 were female to male. So in these heterosexual partnerships, it didn't appear that um, the antiretroviral therapy, the benefit of antiretroviral therapy in preventing transmission differed depending upon the, uh, the gender of the index patient. There was a large number of, uh, of unlinked infections um, and um, some of these infections that occurred in the course of the study are still being analyzed. However, they all occur in the delayed therapy arm, which suggests that, if anything, the benefit of, a of early ARV therapy will look even stronger um, once these data become available. So in terms of clinical results, uh, there were 23 deaths occurring during the study, but there really were, these did not differ in the early treatment and deferred treatment arm. There was a trend um, in a difference in overall morbidity with a reduction in overall morbidity in the early therapy arm. There was a statistically significant difference in uh, the occurrence of extrapulmonary tuberculosis between the two arms with 17 cases in the delayed therapy arm and three in the immediate arm. And that probably makes sense. Um, remember that most of the people entering the trial had relatively high CD4 cell counts. They came from countries where tuberculosis is heavily uh, hyperendemic, actually. And this is a very virulent pathogen that we know is often the first AIDS, uh, AIDS indicator condition in, um, in people from middle-income settings and low-income settings. So it makes sense that this would have been the clinical consequence that might have, um, that might have been most prevalent in in individuals who delayed antiretroviral therapy. So the conclusions from HPTN 052 um, are that immediate antiretroviral therapy initiated high, with, at CD4 cell counts higher than 350 is associated with reduced transmission to uninfected sexual partners. Um, the reduction seen was 96% compared to a strategy where uh, antiretroviral therapy is delayed when people are followed either for a clinical outcome or for um, decline in their CD4 cell count to under 250. So the reduction in hazards ratio based upon the data that was available at the time that the Data Safety and Monitoring Board met was a 27-fold decrease, a highly statistically significant difference in, in preventing the transmission of HIV. In addition to that, in this setting, in the settings where, where people were recruited from, immediate antiretroviral therapy conferred a clinical benefit to um, the infected partner, the person who had HIV, because it decreased the incidence of extrapulmonary TB. So the future plans for um, the HPTM 052 protocol team, um, they are in the process of offering antiretroviral therapy to all patients who um, initially were randomized to the delayed arm. They plan to continue the study for at least one year, perhaps longer, to address um, the following issues that we think are still unknowns, uh, whether there will be continued durability of this prevention benefit uh, that we'll see in people who were 
who were randomized to the immediate therapy arm, whether um, adherence in the long term plays a role, whether that, that um, actually over time, whether that decreases and whether some of these um, strong benefits that were observed in early, the early stages of follow-up actually um, are lost or change over time and whether there's any differences in prevention benefit to those in the delayed arm, and then whether longer-term clinical benefit and safety in both arms, um, what, how they compare over time. So those are the general plans right now um, for HPTN 052. So in terms of treatment as prevention, I wanted to talk about a few other concepts. I think it's clear from the results of this study. We'll certainly learn more when the details are published in, um, in hopefully in the next several months. It's clear that antiretroviral therapy, when given to an individual who's infected, prevent, is, reduces the risk of them transmitting HIV to their sex partner, in particular their heterosexual sex partner. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, about data that's out there that, that people have um, discussed broadly and pointed to that antiretroviral benefit and when, when put into a community and re, that is associated with a reduction in community viral load um, also can decrease the risk of HIV transmission in a community. So I'm going to talk about this concept of community viral load. This is something that um, I think has gotten a lot of attention in the past several years particularly in San Francisco and in other urban centers such as New York City where um, HIV is a big problem. What is community viral load? Well, this is an aggregate measure of HIV RNA or viral load um, that is reported to the health department surveillance unit from community providers from laboratories that are doing testing on individuals who go to clinics and get HIV care and get their viral load checked for clinical care. The two um, summary measures of viral load are mean community viral load, which is usually the average of the last viral load that the surveillance unit of the health department would have received um, by report for each HIV positive individual. And then the total community viral load, this should be an equal sign actually, which would be the sum of all of the last viral loads that were reported for each HIV positive individual in that community, the sum of all of them, um, so all the viral particles that have been measured, summed up um, for all individuals in the community. So why is this useful and what does this aggregate measure mean? Well, probably the health department that is out in front the most on this in, in having really quality surveillance data and using it effectively is the San Francisco um, Department of Health. And so these figures come from a recent publication in PLOS One um, using their data. So first of all, I think everyone agreed from the beginning that this was a really useful aggregate measure um, um, where you can you know, geocode the addresses where people live and the community viral load and you can point um, in your city to places where people might not be getting the best services. So, for example, if everybody here, which I think is the Bayview district of, um, of San Francisco, or if the mean viral load in this part of San Francisco is really, really high, that might suggest that individuals there don't have access to good quality HIV care, or maybe they're not accessing it for some reason. Maybe there are no HIV clinics that are convenient for this 
people, and that's something that a health department or a Ryan White Planning Council might want to look into. I think that's a very non-controversial use of this type of tool. This, um, and then the right panel here, again, shows total viral load, um, the sum of everybody's viral particles, the last measure reported to the health department surveillance unit. And this might suggest that um, the dark blue here, so very different maps here, the dark blue being the highest total community viral load by District of San Francisco. Um, and so maybe because more HIV infected individuals live in this part of town, I don't know if you can see the small print, but right there I think is the Castro District. Right here is South Union, San Francisco. Uh, so more HIV-infected persons living there, more circulating virus, maybe a higher place geographically where HIV transmission is likely because of higher total viral load. So these are two ways to look at community viral load. Um, the hypothesis that, that San Francisco Health Department put forward was that a decreased community viral load would be associated with decreased incident HIV, and they published in their PLOS One article the results of HIV, incident HIV over time, and really that was just new HIV cases being reported to the health department. That is this red line here, so declining trend. Um, the mean community viral load over five years shown here on this histogram, so overall a declining trend. and. Uh, so newly reported HIV and then incident HIV just measured over three years, again, a declining trend. So their conclusions were that community viral load was associated with um, reduced HIV incidence in their city. And um, I think there's a couple of caveats to looking at this type of data. First of all, I will say that before my NIH career, I worked closely with Baltimore City Health Department, and you should all be aware that this type of, these type of surveillance data, you know, it's accessible. It's a, HIV is, name-based reporting of HIV is, is, um, is law now in all 50 states. And so you think that this would be, sounds easy and maybe sounds simple to do, but really matching names accurately and, you know, Joe Johnson and Joe Johnson Jr. and having a slightly different date of birth, it's really a tremendous amount of work, particularly in a city that has a lot of HIV cases, a tremendous amount of work to have a good enough um, HIV AIDS surveillance database to do these types of measures in a meaningful way at all. But even if you have a good surveillance database, actually, um, having, showing that parts of your city have declining HIV incidence, and this is, when it was put, first put forward, the, um, I think the, the concern was that this represented an ecologic fallacy. So declining HIV incidence might also be associated with large screen televisions, for example, in a particular neighborhood. Um, I think that with the biological evidence now that antiretroviral therapy is associated with reduction in HIV transmission, these data and are um, certainly uh, much more plausible, but it's important to recognize that undiagnosed HIV will never be captured in a database at all. Uh, getting an HIV viral load almost always means that a person is going to an HIV clinic provider and getting blood drawn for their management so that large pockets of infection could exist in a city um, and never be apparent by any quality database just if you don't have a good HIV testing program and if you're not linking people to HIV care. 
So I just want to end with some unanswered questions, um, largely related to HPT 1052, HPTN 052. I think that the study has clearly shown that antiretroviral therapy started early is associated with reduced risk of HIV transmission to sexual partners. But I think it's also important to separate out what you can prove at an individual level in a clinical trial and what is provable or what is likely to happen in a community level should you um, introduce antiretroviral therapy uh, in a test and treat strategy. We don't really know, um, you know, with a large proportion of transmission perhaps being related to acute HIV, it's possible that a test and treat at a community level will not be successful or as successful in reducing the incidence of HIV. I made a point, I think, of pointing out that um, the individual health outcomes in H observed in HPT and 052 were largely uh, anti were largely extra pulmonary tuberculosis, and I think it's fair. It's not really fair to tell individuals who live in settings where uh, TB is not a large threat that their individual health will benefit greatly from starting therapy early. I think that's still an open question. I think it's also an open question, even in countries in low income and, and uh, middle income countries where TB is a threat, to remember that INH therapy has not been implemented widely despite WHO recommendations, and perhaps some of those clinical endpoints would not have been observed to the degree that they were had those individuals been on INH. But then I think it's also important um, to, to ask the question. We don't know um, now, but it's been, it's been proposed that we do, that it would be feasible right now to reverse an HIV epidemic with the tools that we have, meaning antiretroviral therapy, circumcision, HIV counseling, and testing in a widespread way. Um, and I think what might limit our ability to prove that um, would, is the lack of, of funding and perhaps even more importantly, the lack of political will.